Hello, goblins and ghouls, and welcome to My Haunted Life Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn, and today I am telling you about one of our local legends, Sisters. So, the local legend's sister. Forgotten story, because it's cool. And it includes ghosts, seances, gunshots, and fire. Uh, trigger warning. There is some talk about suicide associated with the mystery. So, that's not your thing right now. There isn't a suicide, but there's an attempt talked about. So, you know, know yourself and know what you're comfortable with right now. Good morning, my sexy darklings, my creatures of the night, my lovers of all things spooky. I have missed you guys so much. It's it's not even funny. This fall just got absolutely batshit crazy on me. So, sorry about the late podcast, but... I have learned that I need to give myself space during my busy time or I will lose my mind. So, you know, it's the dark of the year. It's still spooky season. It's forever spooky season. It's okay. That being said, I have a ton of researched podcasts that just need to be written and recorded. So there is a lot of new episodes on the way. I'm going to keep the housekeeping short since, honestly, I don't really have a whole lot to report. If you are following my other business, Heart and Horn, you will have seen my Oddities and Curiosities traveling schedule for next year, which means new cities and new ghost stories. I'm very excited. New cities include Tulsa, Providence, Richmond, and Sacramento. I'll be returning to Seattle and Denver again this year as well. So there's a few in there. I'm very excited. If there's anything I should check out, let me know. I'm so excited for some new adventures, let me tell you. Also, if you follow me on that kind of stuff, the Black Frat, no, wait, I said it wrong. Black Hat Friday sale is coming up. Black Friday through Cyber Monday over there. Uh, there'll be discounts. There'll be discounts if you buy a hat on like witchcraft stuff, which almost never happens. So yeah, pop on over, check it out. Get a nice little discount, some spooky Christmas accoutrement. I have some really freaking cute stuff I am trying desperately to get done and designed and I'm really hoping to get it done before next week because next week we're going to New York again to spend with family. So I don't think I'll get anything done before then but at least before the beginning of Jan uh, December give you a hint, 
has to do with somebody that comes on December 5th. Just saying. So keep an eye out over there. If you don't follow that page, follow Heart and Horn. That's me. Oh, where am I? Also, I have decided for my own mental health to switch new episodes to the first and third Thursdays of the month. Although, with this podcast, I or this episode, I already failed at that because I went down... I should have really counted how many rabbit holes I went down for this one. There were a lot. And I just kept finding new things. And I think it was really exciting because it was a local legend. A story I knew, I thought I knew very well. I was very wrong. So that, that, was, that was really fun for me the last few weeks. I picked the story because I thought it would be a nice, quick story. It ended up not being one. This is possibly one of the longest podcasts I've done in a long time. So anyways, first and third, or in this case, third, I'll try to get back with something on the fifth Thursday because that's apparently, um, there's apparently five Thursdays this month. So we'll see. Um, uh, I'm going to fill in the gap weeks with little spooky snippets here and there. So that way you're not missing something. You'll still get something every week from me. So, you know, you know me. I much prefer to bring y'all quality instead of quantity. So I hope you guys feel this that way about this one because I had so much fun with this one. Um, that being said, I think that's it for housekeeping. So that's cool. Um, yeah. On this week's episode, I am telling you the harrowing tale of Alice Crawford Snow. There's a pretty good chance you have never heard of her. Now, if you are from the same area of Colorado that I am in, you have probably heard of her sister, Emma Crawford, the namesake of the Manitou Springs Coffin Races. I'm seeing like some of you go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Her. Alice was your classic Victorian spiritualist. And we always love those over here. With her own spooky story that almost took her life. I know. Vague as hell, but it's good. And we are talking about the theories behind that mystery. What, what, what was it? What, what was it? Spiritual delusion, suicide attempt, or demonic possession? Oh yeah, no, we go there this time. Now, like I've been saying, this is a long one. And lots of rabbit holes. So, I've decided to make this one, two podcasts. So, it'll be so much easier to watch or listen to. So, let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea. Make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you.
a snippet from the Los Angeles Times, February 17th, 1910. Strange stories have come to light about what is known as the Mystery House. It is said that Mrs. Crawford, a spiritualist, and centered her seances about the spirit of her dead daughter, whose body lies at the top of Red Mountain within a rod of their home. The dead girl, like her mother, was an accomplished pianist, and the piano is now draped in black. It is related now how the mother fancied her daughter sitting at the instrument, with weird music floating through the house, played, presumably, by her spirit. I first heard this story only last year on the Colorado Haunted History page on Facebook. I had always heard that Redstone Castle is haunted. Something about a woman seeing a ghost and shooting at it and somehow setting her house on fire. Totally burying the lead there. I never knew it was Alice Crawford, the little sister of Emma Crawford, the biggest celebrity to come out of Manitou. I'll say it. Especially this time of year, it's a big deal. I was going to just focus on Alice since I feel like I have talked about Emma before. I think episode three of the podcast, for God's sakes, all the way back when. But their stories are so interlinked. And their deaths, which is why I think they still haunt the area together. And why I can't tell this tale without the other. A lot of my information about Alice's early life came from Emma, the Emma Crawford Festival website, which got their information from an essay titled Phantoms in the Archives, Unlocking a Manitou Springs Mystery, written by Katie Rudolph and used with permission of the Pikes Peak Library District. So, Emma Crawford was born March 24th, 1863. And a few years later, Alice Gertrude Crawford was born to Nathan W. and Jeanette Webster Crawford on August 14th, 1866 in Springfield, Massachusetts. I'm not sure what happened to Mr. Crawford. I'm assuming he died fairly early on, but this is honestly the only time he's in the story. The, the, that's it. He's mentioned one other time, but that, that that's an obituary later on. So, Jeanette Crawford, the mother, usually referred to as Madame Jeanette in the newspaper society pages, was a talented pianist and organist who trained at the prestigious Leipzig Conservatory, now the University of Music and Theater in Leipzig, 
It's in Germany. Somebody's probably yelling at me right now. I'm sorry. Both of the daughters pursued the arts as well. According to an article, Emma had acquired her mastery, masterly control of the piano from spirit instruction and is said to have never taken a lesson from mortal hands in her life. Now, I have a feeling that Mrs. Crawford had a big part in that. Not only the piano, but the, the ghost part. Mama Crawford not only was a performer, but was also a piano teacher and a huge spiritualist. So I think she might have had a hand in the branding there as well. Alice was also a talented musician, but she seemed to thrive more in theater performances. A lot of the articles I found reported her stage performances and dramatic readings accompanied usually by her mother on piano. I started to think that Mrs. Crawford might have been a bit of a stage mom, which probably led Alice to have some very strong ambitions for fame at a young age, which was actually reported on by the New York Times because Alice basically ran away from home to New York. Stage struck beauty cured. Alice Gertrude Crawford, a pretty little brunette about 17 years old, was taken into Inspector Burns' room at police headquarters yesterday by detectives Ruland and Frink and handed over to her mother, Mrs. J.W. Crawford of Chelsea, Mass. Miss Crawford, who is a very bright, smart girl, became stage struck some time ago and made up her mind to become an actress and a great one, if she could possibly do so. She went home from school at Springfield for a little vacation during the latter part of last month and then sent back to her school. She came to this city to look for an engagement at some theater. She first went to the St. Dennis Hotel where she registered under an assumed name and afterward to the Stevens house. She tried to secure engagement at several theaters without success and on Monday went to see ma'am Janessa Czech who took somewhat of a fancy to her. Yesterday morning however Mrs. Crawford reported the girl's disappearance to Inspector Burns and the detectives found her at the Prospect House 150 5th Street and 10th Avenue. She went with them willingly and when shown her mother at headquarters burst into tears and threw herself into her arms. Mother and daughter left last night for their home where Mrs. Crawford is a music teacher. Maybe because I finally watched it, but 
this is giving me very Pearl vibes. You know, the Ty West movie, the horror movies. Um, you know, the one where a small town girl wants to be famous and when she doesn't get the role she wants, everyone starts dying. Well, I guess she was technically murdering people throughout the movie, but you know what I mean. That being said, Alice didn't kill anyone, but I feel like the sentiment is there. This setback, however, didn't deter her. Alex, Alice continued on her path to achieve fame in music and theater. Emma, Alice's older sister, had had health issues since she was seven. They were pretty sure it was tuberculosis. I say pretty sure. I'm not sure if there was an actual diagnosis that I could find. And a lot of articles I found said things like presumably and probably. I'm assuming she was diagnosed, but everyone back then seemed to have tuberculosis. And like many others before her, she went west. Emma moved with her mother from Massachusetts to Manitou Springs, Colorado around 1889 in the hope that the local mineral springs and the mountain air might be a cure for her illness. Alice continued pursuing her acting career. She started working at the Augustan Daily Company, who was a very big deal at the time. He was a theater ma manager, producer, director, and playwright who owned a stock theater company in New York City, known for bringing Shakespearean plays and other dramas to many regions of the United States and Europe. In 1888, the Boston Daily Advisor reported that Miss Alice G. Crawford of Boston had been engaged by Austin Daly for three years. Alice became known as the Queen of Shakespearean Tragedy on the Pacific Coast, doing lots of roles in California. I found so many articles and snippets in papers around the country touting the talents of Alice as a wonderful singer and a powerful actress. She was renowned for her Shakespearean work on stage, and it sounds like she had no interest in trying out movies, because that was starting to be a thing, since it was still early in the silent movie era, which I think is interesting that she didn't think about it in California. Although, I did find another article that hinted that she just couldn't make the jump to moving pictures, which is interesting since a possible romantic connection had no trouble with the movies. More on that a little bit later. During this time, Emma's health continued to decline. Longtime Manitou resident and friend of the Crawfords, William Bill S. Crosby, who I cite a lot here on this podcast or on this episode because a lot of the stories come from him. I couldn't tell if the numerous articles I found 
all are citing one previous interview by him or if he gave numerous interviews throughout the years. Anyways, he recounted in 1947 that Emma and her mother initially rented a two-story frame house with a gabled roof and bay windows located at 104 Capitol Hill Avenue. I wonder if it's still there. I'm going to go find it. Emma ended up staying in Manitou in hopes of regaining her health in the fresh air and sunshine, while her mother traveled back and forth to see her sister Alice, sometimes paying her own gigs, usually out in California. She was a big organist out there. Emma was reportedly engaged to a Mr. William Hildebrand, an engineer from New York who was said to be working on the Pikes Peak Cog Railway. One article I read was that he was courting her when they were still out east and then followed her out here to be with her while she hopefully got better, which is hella romantic. Another report said that they met while they were out hiking separately and they ran into each other, which in Colorado, that's hella romantic. It is said that next to music, nature was Emma's second love, and she could be seen in a red dress climbing Red Mountain. Sorry, that Pearl reference has popped back into my head. Different sister, though. Um, climbing Red Mountain, which she nicknamed Red Chief in honor of American Indians. Let's remember the time period. Don't come at me. This is this is what was this is what was reported in nineteen sixty nine. Because ironically, I didn't see how problematic that one was. Because I was like, oh, Red Mountain. Okay. Oh, oh, okay. Anyways, a nineteen sixty nine Colorado Springs Gazette Telegraph article by Rufus Porter claims that the Crawfords were spiritualists. And like many spiritualists of the time period, believed they had an Indian guide from the spirit world to protect them in the present one. You know, white people shit. I feel like this is such an interesting thing to me because a lot of the spiritual movements, indigenous people and practices always seem to get brought into them. So I think it's interesting that this was starting way back when. I didn't realize that, that appropriation started so early. Many spiritualists of the time equated American Indian spirit guides with having a power to mend physical health. In the Porter article from 1969, the following antidote is shared, more than likely coming from the 95-year-old Bill Crosby. One day, Emma fancied she saw a handsome buck Indian beckoning to her from the top of Red Mountain. She vowed that she would climb the mountain and meet her Indian guide. 
Firm in her resolve, she revealed her plan to her mother and her lover. Both were opposed to such an ordeal, for the girl was in a delicate condition, as were all her friends and neighbors when they heard of it. But their pleading were pleadings were to no avail. She slipped off one day when her mother was teaching piano to a neighbor lady and climbed the mountain to the very top. She was very late getting back home, but no one would believe her when she told them where she had been. I did so claim it, she said. I tied my scarf to a little pinion tree at, on the summit. I have decided that I will be buried beneath that tree. Crosby reported that he climbed Red Mountain the following day and found Emma's scarf tied to a tree. Along with her footprints at the summit of Red Mountain that Emma wished to be buried. She made sure to tell Hildebrand all the specifics. Emma's obituary reports that she had a horror of cemeteries, formalities, and anything low and gloomy, and even in death, and wished to be carried high to sunshine and pure air. Emma's death came on December 4th, 1891, at 10.30 p.m. Her obituary remarked, the few who knew her here remarked her calm, unruffled mood, and though her life was such that intimates were few, she was known by nearly all as a musician of rare power and the Manitou Springs Journal reported upon the door of a cottage on Ute Avenue, then hung pendant. Several days thereafter Emma's death, a white cape, though she, whose departure was thus announced, had in this life passed beyond the bower where brook and river met. While Emma was having this lovely, sweet romance, Alice had a rather difficult love life. It was a bit hard to find anything about Alice's first marriage. According to the Phantoms in the Archives article by Katie Rudolph that I mentioned earlier, she found newspaper mentions of a husband who was an operatic singer, which I saw those and it was really confusing, by the last name of Saroni with a Y or an I, the last letter. I saw this name only once in my research as her first husband. It doesn't seem like there was ever a marriage license uncovered, um, which is weird because with especially these local stories, I feel like local historians, that's what they get like Avon man, like finding those primary documents. So I'm like really surprised there's not a copy of this somewhere. I'm starting to wonder. 
however, if Alice was a beard. According to Rudolph, one possibility is that Alice married Gilbert Cerrone, 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 a vaudeville performer. And I found this article. It says Cerrone, just married previously to Cerrone. That's it. It's like, is he famous? Like Cher? And he only gets one name and everybody knows what the heck we're talking about. So this led me down one of my many rabbit holes. Apparently, he is known for his comedic impersonations of women. In other words, he was a drag performer. This is what Wikipedia said about him. Gilbert Cerrone was a cross-dressing performer in vaudeville as well as early Edison manufacturing, American Metroscope, and Sigmund Lupin films. In his obituary in Variety, he was described as one of the first impersonators of the old maid type and was said to be considered one of the funniest men in show business. So, okay, quick, uh, quick trigger warning. Just, uh, remember the time period. <laughs> His vaudeville performances included minstrel shows where he donned blackface using burnt cork and mimicked African-American characters. He also performed with song and dance team Kelly and Waters. He appeared in a series of early Edison films with Old Maid in the title and had catchphrases. I stopped myself from looking up the catchphrases. The rabbit hole was big enough. His performances used pronounced facial expressions for levity. He was a best man at Annie Hiddell's wedding. He died of acute indigestion in Pittsburgh on December 15th, 1910. Now, I had no idea who Annie Hiddell, Hindell, Hiddell, uh, was, so I had to look that up. Annie Hiddell apparently was the first popular male impersonator performer in the United States. So I'm like, it's a bunch of kings and queens hanging out, and I love that. Turn the century kings and queens. Love it. Now, she married multiple times. So I'm not 100% sure which marriage Gilbert would have been best man for. But it seems likely, seems like Gilbert's and Alice's relationship would have been in the late 1890s-ish. Annie married Annie Ryan in 1886. Hedel gave her name as Charles and wore male clothes to the ceremony. So... She's marrying women. We have a lesbian. I love it. Turn of the century. They were good friends. Actually, no, they were married. We have, like, official proof of it. 
Hindell remarried after Ryan died in 1891 to a, another young woman named Louise Spagnell. So, who knows? Maybe there wasn't a marriage license found by researchers between Alice and Gilbert because there wasn't any. I also never found anything about an official divorce. Maybe Alice was just a beard or, you know, maybe she's out there living that thespian, bohemian, poly lifestyle. All for it. It could be also that there was nothing official because there wasn't anything official. You know, she was a high society gal. Maybe they just lied and said she got married. I don't know. Anyways, Alice did have a daughter named Maureen, born around 1898, hence why I'm playing with those years. So, that's why I'm saying maybe they're, maybe they lied about the marriage certificate. Anyways, Alice returned to live and work in Massachusetts in the 1890s as a newspaper reported that she dramatized Mrs. Ella Willer Wilcox's romantic poem, Maureen. I'm wondering if that's where she got her daughter's name. While Mother Jeanette provided piano accompaniment at the Music Academy of Chelsea, Massachusetts in 1896. Most of the references of her first marriage I found were in reference to her daughter. Anytime they brought up the daughter in a newspaper article, it would state her daughter from her first marriage. The other thing I found was that she had given up her career during her marriage, which I thought was very interesting that that was reported on. So I don't know what was going on there because it really didn't seem like she did. So I don't know. It seemed like she kept working until, you know, she was visiting. Anyways, her second marriage was to Theodore Snow, operator of a tobacco and stationery shop in Dawson, Yukon on August 17th, 1904. In a lot of articles, I found him referred to as a king of gamblers or a Klondike gambler. So I'm also not sure what's going on there. Snow met Alice in San Jose in the spring of 1904, where she was rehearsing for a play and he apparently fell in love with the beauty of her voice. The marriage took place at St. Mary's Personage in Dawson, and Snow insisted that his fiancée should wear as her bridal gown the classic robe she had appeared in in the play. It was reported that the Snows would live in Dawson, only until large business interests there could be disposed of. After that, they planned to make their home in Southern California. That apparently never happened. According to Benjamin F. 
Craig, it's hard to say, a postal worker in Dawson City who kept a list of people who had left the Klondike. Like, you just, I guess you don't have much to do up there. You're just monitoring who's there and who's not. In June of 1905, he reported that Maureen and Alice Snow departed without Theodore. It sounds like she either got sick of waiting for him or realized it was just never going to happen that they moved to California. So Alice was once again a single mother. She returned to her family. By September 15th, 1905, only a couple months after she left her husband, Alice was performing again in California. So she didn't let this momentary setback stop her. She was singing and performing on stages. One recital was listed at the First Unitarian Church in Oakland, California, alongside her pianist mother. Alice performed the softly sighing aria from the opera Der Fritzsuits and a theatrical rendering of A Royal Princess by Christine Rossetti. It was reported that Alice commands the attention of her audience as in her impersonation of a princess, she tells with master effect of the passions that sway the royal heart. I found a rendition of softly sighing. That's actually what's been playing in the background this last little bit. Now, this is not Alice, this is a later performer, but I think it gives you an idea of what her audience were getting. By 1908, Alice and her mother were listed as living at 137 Ute Avenue back in Manitou Springs, Colorado. Now, remember, Emma had passed in 1891, and that, that was their connection to this area. She had been gone about 17 years at this point. These women had lives elsewhere, especially in California, where Alice was acting and her mother was still playing piano for recitals and churches. But something just kept bringing them back here. Well, that something was Emma. Madame Jeanette and Alice did continue to play and sing together for some time around Manitou. But that wasn't their only hobby. Right after this, I'll be back with the Crawfords' other pastime, spiritualism and seances. Bye.
this is where things get a bit weird and extra fun. I feel like I talk about spiritualism quite a bit here on the podcast. I freaking love those kooky Victorian spiritualists. And I don't want to make an, this another hour-long podcast. So here's a quick snippet from Wikipedia about it. But I think it actually does a pretty good job summing it up, in case you're not familiar. Spiritualism was a social religious movement in the 19th century, according to which an individual's awareness persists after death and may be contacted by the living. The afterlife or the spirit world is seen by spiritualists, not as a static place, but as one in which spirits continue to evolve. These two beliefs that contact with the spirits is possible, and that spirits are more advanced than humans, led spiritualists to the belief that spirits are capable of providing useful insight regarding moral and ethical issues, as well as about the nature of God. Some spiritualists will speak of a concept that they refer to as spirit guides. Pacific spirits often contacted who are relied upon for spiritual guidance. We have talked about spiritualism throughout this episode already. Emma and her spirit guide on Red Mountain, Madame Jeanette, states that Emma's piano talents are from spirit instruction we have a lot of ghost stuff going on all over the place here. It appears Madame Jeanette, like her daughter Emma, was a part of the spiritual move movement. While the Madame was living in Colorado Springs in 1892, just one year after the death of Emma, the Colorado City Iris reported that Jeanette would speak on the subject of today for the spiritualist service at Durkee Hall. I'm not sure where that is. 
She spoke on spiritualism quite a bit after Emma's death. I couldn't find any engagements before Emma's death, but after it seems like the family went all in on spiritualism. And that's when we get this gem of an article on December 28th, 1909. Dead daughter plays the piano, says madam. Accomplished musician declares daughter buried years ago makes nightly visits to her former home at the foot of the Rockies. In an unpretentious plans adopted by madam Crawford and her daughter, Mrs. Alice Snow of Manitou, where, in the grave of the former's daughter, Miss Lucille Crawford, is now being re-enhanced with a proper foot and headstones, as with other embellishments, a decidedly peculiar as well as interesting story of unaccountable relations between the living and the dead is unfolded. Since the death of Mrs. Crawford nearly 15 years ago, I did my math better, nightly conversations have been held between the deceased and her mother, and although are inspiring and almost uncanny, Nevertheless, wonderful demonstrations have been given. As regular as the evening shadows fall, the spirit of the dead girl, according to the assertions of her mother, appears at the Redstone Mansion at the foot of Iron Mountain at the top, which is located the grave. Three years ago, the mother, after a trip along the Pacific coast, returned to the Redstone Mansion, eager to once again engage in conversation with her deceased daughter. In the meantime, Mrs. Snow, one of the most accomplished and successful satellites appearing in the limelight on the western slope, had journeyed as far north as Alaska in her quest for stage triumphs. And she was successful to a marked degree. Mrs. Snow, after considerable correspondence with her mother, gave up the stage, despite her many flattering offers with the understanding with her mother that the two should once more take up the residence in the stone, Redstone Mansion and enjoy their nightly conversations with the dead. That Madame Crawford is also decidedly talented is known to all the music-loving public of Manitou and Colorado Springs in as much she, as much she quite regularly gives pleasing piano recitals. These are as novel as they are entertaining in as much as it is the claim of the madam that the instrument is also a spiritualistic temperament. And it is only through such mediums 
that the wonderful music may be induced. At the time of the death of the daughter, it was her request to be buried on top of Red Mountain. It is also recalled by the older residents of Manitou that Mrs. Crawford was at that time engaged to the original builder of the Cog Road. In the nightly meetings between the living and the dead, it is the claim of the madam that piano recitals of the most classic character are given by the dead daughter, who arises from the grave in a darkened room, gives a wonderful piano seance. While no one has ever been present at these musical seances, Nevertheless, the madam claims that such are a regular feature of the seances held between the living and the dead in the little red house at the foot of the Rockies. Madam Crawford leaves today for Southern California, where she will again take up her position as an organist at one of the biggest churches in Los Angeles. So there's a lot to unpack there. The first thing that stuck out to me with this article is just the drama here. Perhaps because of all of this, Redstone Castle became known as the Haunted House, even in 1910. Also, it's a really hard article to read. <laughs> and then it also says that Alice gave up the stage what? Like, that is what she had strived for her entire life. And she was just giving it up. I also find it interesting that her mother left for work, though. Like, she took off to do her own thing. I did find another article that stated that Mrs. Snow returned to her mother's home two years ago to have the body of her sister exhumed and buried in another place. Fearful of the storms on the mountaintop, washing away the remains and exposing the bones. The sister had the body disinterred and now it now lies buried in a more secure place. So, from all accounts, she was here taking care of her sister. On February 11th, 1910, it was reported that Alice's daughter, Maureen, left Monday for San Jose, California to spend the remainder of the winter with her grandmother, Mrs. J.W. Crawford, which honestly, I don't blame her. It's a little bleak here that time of year, but I don't think anyone was prepared for the shit to hit the fan like it did. Just three days later, an article appeared in the Colorado Springs Gazette that I'm just going to read you a few snippet of right now. Woman is helpless in blazing bed, shoots self in knee. Rescuer forces entrance into haunted house. Mystery surrounds injury to Mrs. Margaret Crawford Snow of Manitou. But for the timely visit and presence of mind of John T. White, a Colorado Springs attorney, Mrs. Margaret Crawford Snow, formerly an eminent 
dramatic reader would probable have burned to death in bed yesterday afternoon in her home in the much talked of much talked of haunted house on Red Mountain Manitou just after she had accidentally shot herself through the knee with a 32 caliber Ivor Johnson revolver. She will recover, but may be lamed for life if the kneecap is fractured. Attorney White had been requested by Mrs. Snow to call in regard to a proposed loan when he approached the Snow residence at 5.10 o'clock, he found the doors locked and the window shades drawn. Greeted by the smell of smoke, he hurriedly entered through a window and found Mrs. Snow, helpless in bed and the bedclothes burning. She told him that she could not move as she had accidentally shot herself. Bundling up the bedclothes, Mr. White threw them out a window, and after learning that the woman ha was not burned, he summoned Dr. H.M. Ogilby. So, that's one hell of a what the absolute hell happened. Like, there's a lot going on right there. And that is something we are going to have to go into in the next episode. Remember, I'm trying out the every two weeks for the big podcast, so you will have to wait a little. But I'll be back next week with a spooky snippet. So until then, my dears, my darklings, my creatures of the night, stay spooky. And you know, don't burn to death in bed, please. Or, you know, shoot yourself in the knee. That doesn't sound fun. Thank you to everyone out there listening today. My Haunted Life podcast is written, researched, produced, edited, and hosted by me, Angela Hartshorn. All of my sources are in the show notes on my website at www.myhauntedlifepodcast.com and on the Patreon page. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you are interested in more pictures, videos, and info for this week's episode, make sure to check out the Patreon page. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please subscribe there because that, that, that would that'd be really cool. You can support the show for as little as $2 a month. If you have any information about today's episode, like Gort, ghost stories, maybe you had an encounter with an indigenous spirit guide on top of Red Mountain, or maybe just, you know, a different ghost story you want to tell me. Email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can write me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and now YouTube, which I'm having way too much fun with. I really am. All of, all at My Haunted Life Podcast. While you're there, Please like and follow and comment. It honestly makes my day. Also, let's not forget the podcast group on Facebook. We have a lot of fun over there. Lot, lots of good ghosty memes.
And make sure to tell your friends about it. Word of mouth goes a long way. Music is by Ghost Stories Incorporated, except for those extra special stuff. Those will be tagged in the show notes. So stay spooky, my dears. <laughs>